0: Today, we're gonna continue our series in Galatians by looking at chapter two, verses one to 16, a really powerful example from the life of Paul and a real world example of the gospel in practice. You know, my kids are at that point in school where they're learning about the scientific method. Remember that, the scientific method? It's all about how scientists uh, can research and, and gain empirical data. You know, for the rest of us who aren't scientists, uh, you might need a refresher. Okay, let me remind you: this is a process of determining what's true and what's not. And it's been used by scientists at least since the 15th century. And basically, you start with a question or an observation, and then you research what you can about the pertinent topics around that question. And then you come up with an educated guess. Called anybody remember? a hypothesis. Yes, a hypothesis. But then you have to test the hypothesis with an experiment. You have to conduct an experiment that will put that hypothesis to the test. And then you analyze the results from that test, that experiment, and then you come to some conclusions and you publish the results. You make the results known. This month in Galatians, we've been talking about the, the heart of the matter, what really is the center of the Christian faith, what is the baseline foundation of this thing that we call Christianity. And what we see here in Galatians is that Christianity hinges upon the message of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. All of that together is good news that is the core Of Christianity. And we call that message the gospel. It's an old English word that means good news, good story. It is good news that the high and holy God of all creation would make a way to make all things new once again, to fix everything that's been wrecked by sin and by evil, including you and me. But the gospel is not just a hypothesis. And, and how do I know this is true? Because I've tested it. I've seen the results of the gospel in my own life and in the lives of those around me. I've seen it in our church. And what we're going to see in our text for today, in Galatians chapter 2, is Paul giving us two concrete examples of testing. The gospel, of putting the gospel to work, of applying it in the real world. Now, I have a couple of pastors groups that I meet with once a month, and I love uh, talking with these guys. And you wouldn't believe some of the stories that my fellow pastors have. At least three of us have had uh, disasters in our baptismals, when the the, the baptismal overflowed and we had to call in ServPro to come in and do emergency repairs in the building and and try to mitigate the disaster. And some of us also had the story of how we almost got COVID back in February of 2020 when we were in Belarus and we met the professor of the student who was the first confirmed case of COVID in the whole Nation of Belarus, and we were freaking out and thought we had all been infected with this disease that no one really knew anything about. Just crazy stories from these pastors that are are doing life together. And what we see here are some stories from Paul's life in Galatians chapter 2. But this is not just wild stories that, that Paul is telling, they're not just entertaining stories, they're not just random stories either. These stories that Paul tells here are highly relevant to the situation in Galatia. He's writing this letter to these churches in Galatia that have been infiltrated with these false teachers, these Judaizers, these these teachers who want to put a yoke of slavery back upon Christians, Gentile converts who become Christians. They say, that's great, you can be a Christian, but first and foremost, you have to be Jewish. They want them to live like Jews. And apparently this group of of Judaizers had also made their way to Jerusalem. We see that Paul, when he goes down to Jerusalem, encounters this same false teaching, this same pseudo-Christianity that seeks to put a yoke of slavery back upon people who are free in Christ. And Paul follows through on this scientific method He follows through on on putting the gospel to the test and he sums up his conclusions beautifully at the end of our text for today. So our outline is called The the Gospel Confirmed and Challenged. This is good news in the real world. We're gonna see the gospel actually applied in a real world to real world situations. So let's look at the first experiment in verses one to 10 of chapter 2, We're calling this point number one confirmation of the gospel in Jerusalem. We're going to see the gospel confirmed when Paul put it to the test in Jerusalem. And point A in our outline is is why Paul went to Jerusalem in the first place. What what was it that compelled him to go? Look at verses 1 and 2 in our text. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, the the leaders in Jerusalem, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So what is it that compels Paul to go to Jerusalem? Well, first he says it was a revelation he had a revelation that it was time to go back to Jerusalem. This is probably Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. Last week, we saw in chapter one how he had gone down to Jerusalem after three years in Arabia, ministering and preaching the gospel there. And he did a two-week intensive 15 days with Peter. And he met with James, the brother of Jesus, a leader there in Jerusalem. And and he consulted with the leaders there before moving on to The northwest to continue planting churches. His second motive in in going to uh, Jerusalem was to check himself. He wanted to make sure that his message that he was preaching was the true gospel, the, the valid gospel message. He wanted to make sure that message was on track with what the apostles, the other apostles, were teaching. He probably was encountering a lot of opposition already from other Christian leaders who were these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians who just said, Paul, you're out of control. You're, what you're teaching is crazy. You got to stop. Timothy George and his awesome commentary on Galatians says that Paul was probably hearing people saying something like this. After his conversion, we had such high hopes for Paul. After all, no one else in this generation was better trained in God's Torah than he. But now he has departed from the faith of Jesus and from the apostles. He's carrying out a negative campaign against the law, totally divorcing the Messiah from the nation Israel. He's a dangerous radical who must be stopped before he completely overturns the Jewish character of our faith, by bringing into the church those Gentiles who shun so basic a requirement of the law as circumcision. I wonder if these rumors were were getting back to Paul and it made him wonder, can this be right? Is what I'm teaching about the gospel true? That we're no longer under the law? That we're no longer condemned by our own inability to follow the rules and be good enough? Is it true that Christ has set us free through his sacrificial atoning life and death and resurrection? Is it true that the gospel is saying that our righteousness doesn't depend on our own ability to keep the rules, not even a little bit? I was talking with Don Finto. He's a legendary pastor of Belmont Church. He's been a pastor in Nashville for many, many decades now. And I asked him, How do you prepare a sermon? He said, I just go to the text. I just read the text. And sometimes I think, can this be right? Is this what the Bible is saying here? Is this really what I'm hearing from the Lord? He prayerfully reads the text and he says, huh, that's amazing. And sometimes he checks himself with commentaries, with other books, wise scholars, both living and dead. He might call a trusted friend, a Bible expert and say, can this be right, what I'm hearing from the Lord here on, on this text? You know, God's message is often shocking, and it often goes against what our sensibilities may be, and we would do well, like Paul, to check with some wise and, and godly people. So when Paul gets to Jerusalem, and his buddy Barnabas, who was a Jewish Christian who uh, already introduced him to the Jerusalem leaders, He also brings along one of his protégés, a a Gentile convert named Titus. Titus was probably converted under Paul's ministry, and Paul recognized that Titus had some gifts for ministry and that the Lord had blessed him, and he was a leader. So Paul took him alongside of him to to be a co-laborer through all of his missionary efforts throughout the first century. But in Jerusalem, Titus is obviously an outsider, He's a pagan Gentile who has been converted to Christ now. And for over 2,000 years, the people of God, the covenant people had been marked by the ritual of circumcision. Every male who was born into the family of God was set apart eight days after their birth through the ritual of circumcision. It goes all the way back to Abraham In Genesis chapter 17, when God establishes this covenant with Abraham through the the physical sign of circumcision. And that, you know, set them apart to the Greeks and to the Romans as this strange people who all were circumcised. It kept them as a holy, set-apart people for God. So in point B in our outline, you see here that Titus forces the issue in Jerusalem. He goes ahead and forces the issue in verses 3 to 5. It says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring to them, we did not yield in submission. It says so that they would bring a a yoke of slavery back upon them. And Paul says, no, we didn't yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's saying we didn't listen to these Judaizers who said Titus needs to be circumcised. And Paul said, no, that's not the gospel. He didn't submit to these people who were preaching a false gospel. And at first, everyone agrees that Titus is indeed a full-fledged member of God's family now by putting his faith in God's saving work through Jesus Christ. But then this group of of Jewish Christians come in and say, uh uh-uh, not so fast. He didn't have the sign." He hasn't been made uh, physically into the family of God through circumcision. He can't be part of the covenant people of God. But Paul essentially says, wait, 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 that's, that's not good news, what you're saying. What you're saying is that we have to be conformed outwardly through a physical sign. And that's, that's slavery. That's about being outwardly right. That has nothing to do with what God really cares about, which is our hearts, our inner sanctification, our inner salvation of our souls. So who's right? Who's, who's got it right? More importantly, is, is the gospel, is the message of Jesus true or not? This is where the, the OG apostles, the uh, original uh, inner circle apostles of, of Peter and John and then James, the, the brother of, of Jesus, who's a leader in the church of Jerusalem, they, they weigh in too. Look at verse six. Verse six says that, that, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. He says, God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul gives his argument and, and Peter and James and John say, yeah, that's good. We got nothing else to add to that. Yeah, you nailed it, Paul. What you're saying is, is right and good and true, and, and we agree. They, they hear his argument and they back him up. They confirm that what Paul has been preaching is indeed the truth. They affirm that, God's, that Paul's gospel is not only good news, but it is the good news, the true message of Jesus Christ. And they all agree on what the, the division of labor will be going forward. It says that Peter will oversee the the, the proclamation of the gospel to the the Jewish Christians, the Jewish people, and Paul is going to lead the efforts to the Gentiles. They all kind of had this agreement between these men who are seen as pillars in First Baptist Church, Jerusalem. If, If the church of God is a house, the pillars of this house are Peter and James and John As key leaders, that's point C on your outline, says that there was agreement among the pillars of the church. They all agreed on how the labor should be divided too. Look at verses 7 through 10. Uh, Verse 7 says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." So there's great unity, there's great agreement among Paul and and the pillar apostles, not only about the gospel, but about how the method of the gospel would be advanced. The only thing they asked Paul to remember, as you go ministering, remember the poor. And Paul says, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Why is that so important? Why is ministering to the poor such a key part of being a Christian? It's because we follow Jesus. And the pillars knew the heart of Jesus very well, intimately knew the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus was to care for people, body, mind, and soul. The gospel is holistically good news for every part of creation and every part of who we are and who humans are. Jesus cared about people's physical needs. That's why he healed the sick. That's why he opened the eyes of the blind. That's why he cleansed the the lepers. This is why he uh, cared and fed for the hungry. You cannot separate physical needs and spiritual needs. Caring for people is a holistic gospel ministry. Here at Woodmont, we, we call meeting physical needs in the name of Jesus, we call that ministry. And we have several ministries. You know, our food pantry ministry just keeps growing and, and expanding, and they feed more and more people, and they they pray with them, meeting spiritual needs as well as physical needs. Room in the Inn, every other Saturday, we have a, a group of men here who come in out of the cold and, and spend the night in our church, and, and Marcus and Rob and, and so many others graciously host them with with warmth and hospitality showing these men that they have dignity and worth before the Lord. And several of our life groups have provided uh, suppers and devotionals and breakfast and sack lunches. And they have a place to, to, to shower and to clean up and, and just be in a, a house of the Lord for a night. All of that stuff that we do that's, that's ministry is because we follow a savior who cared about physical needs because the gospel is holistic In nature. That leads us to the second gospel test, the the challenge in Antioch. Not Antioch down I-24 southeast of here. This is Antioch in Syria. This is the third largest Roman city. The the challenge of the gospel in Antioch. Antioch was a very important Roman city uh, that was the, the third most important. Uh, city in all of the Roman Empire behind Rome itself and Alexandria in North Africa. And the church in Antioch was pretty much Paul's home base. He and Barnabas spent a lot of time there. They launched their missionary journeys from Antioch. And it was about 300 miles from Jerusalem. So the Jews who lived in Antioch weren't as super rigid about the, the ritualistic culture, the, the, the cultic culture. Uh, practices that they did in Jerusalem. This was pretty far outside of the Judean area. And in Antioch, you have this beautiful picture of the new covenant family of God, of Jews and Gentiles living in harmony together, sharing meals together around one table, not worrying about offending Old Testament laws or not because they are free in Christ. And Paul has, has planted this church, he has established this church, and he's taught that the gospel provides freedom in our conscience to eat things that were once forbidden for God's people. Now we can break bread together with people who aren't like us at one table. And it's hard for us to understand what a big deal this was for people who used to be devout Jews. Remember in the book of Daniel, how these young men from, from Judah are deported into Babylon, this pagan land. And and the king says, hey, here's all this great rich food. Eat, just enjoy all this barbecue that I've put before you. And Daniel and his buddies say, no way. We'd rather die than defile ourselves with your food. And they say, don't make us sin against our God by eating this food. And instead they asked for just vegetables and, and water. And of course the Lord provided for them But this is a big deal to sit with people who had not washed themselves ceremonially before they eat would defile one's self. To eat the food that was forbidden by the Old Testament was also a way to defile yourself. And to defile oneself means to be unacceptable to God and to other holy people. It was to be removed from the covenant promises of God. Apparently, when Peter first came to Antioch, the first time he sees the the freedom of the gospel on display and he sees God's people now, his family, both Jews and Gentiles, breaking bread together, definitely celebrating the Lord's Supper together, having communion feast, remembering the death of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And Peter first says, this is great. This is awesome. And he jumps right in. Remember, Peter is the guy who saw the sheet come down out of heaven in Acts chapter 10 that had the the animals that were clean and unclean. And God said, take, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, I would never defile myself. And God told him, remember what I have made clean, do not call unclean. So Peter, he got it. And he jumped right in and joined this group of people. But just like when Peter walked out on the water, to Jesus, and the wind and the waves came up, and Peter got scared. and He began to sink. The the fear sets in once again with Peter. He panics, and he buckles under the pressure. Look at verses 11 through 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, even Barnabas, that's a huge statement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. It seems like Peter's problem here is is why do you, who do you want to eat lunch with? It's a classic problem that every student on the first day of school experiences. You wonder who's going to be in your lunch period. Who are you going to sit with? Who are you going to sit with? Apparently, Peter was fine to sit with all these new converts, these Gentile people, and eat whatever they were eating until the cool kids from Jerusalem show up and he says, oh, no, I wouldn't eat with them. I, would, I don't associate with those guys. I don't really uh, hang out with them. No, that would be bad. I don't do that. And he separates himself. And he, he begins to cave to the pressure that's put on him by these Jerusalem leaders who show up in Antioch. He says, oh, yeah, 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 I would never do that. And I believe that Paul probably confronted uh, Peter to his face in private first, just as Matthew 18 says, he probably had a conversation with him and says, Peter, it, it, you can't do that. You, you can't separate now just because they're here. The gospel doesn't change. These people are still saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and their sins are washed away and they are made clean and they are able to eat with the Gentiles. Let, don't you know of all people that what God has called clean don't call unclean? Eat with a clear conscience and in the fellowship and the unity of faith in Christ. We've died to our old selves, we've been raised into a new family of faith. But these powerful leaders from First Baptist Church of Jerusalem show up and and Peter caves, he caves to the pressure. it's, It's like a high school comedy. Oh, I don't really hang out with those guys. Except that it's not funny, it's hypocrisy. You know, the word for hypocrisy goes back to ancient theater. It it comes from two Greek words. It literally means to interpret underneath. If that sounds strange to you, remember that in ancient uh, Greek drama, they'd wear these big masks on their face. So to be a hypocrite was to be an actor. To be a hypocrite was someone who wore a mask, who played a part, who hid beneath a, a veneer, of a false persona, and was not who their convictions really made them to be. When Paul accuses Peter and Barnabas and all these leaders from Jerusalem of being hypocrites, he's saying they're not being true to their real selves now. If they've been born again into a living hope in Jesus Christ, then why put the mask on of pretending to be Uh, under this yoke of slavery again. That betrays their new identity in Christ. Hypocrisy isn't just about failing to live up to what you say you believe. It's covering up who you actually are now in the core of who you really are. And that leads to Paul's confrontation. That's point B on your outline. You see the protest that Paul brings up. And here we see two Great apostles colliding. Look at verse 14. It says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We knew this was coming. Paul's already told us that he confronted Peter to his face. He says, when you came here, you were fine to live like a Gentile, but now you want all the Gentiles to live like Jews. It's inconsistent with the gospel. It's not consistent with what we know to be right and good and true now because of what Jesus has done for us. That's a big deal. Why is that such a big deal? Is the gospel really at stake over what had happened in Antioch? Is Peter really doing something that might do damage to the gospel message? Why is it such a big deal? It's crucial to remember that the the issue here isn't so much about what Peter ate, but with whom he ate it. If the gospel really makes us into one family, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then we are closer than blood relatives to other Christians. We bear the same heavenly father. We are bound for the same heavenly reality. And yet Peter denies fellowship with other Christians because of Old Testament laws. Why did Peter do this? Why did he mask his convictions? Why did he deny the truth of the birth, the new birth that he had experienced in Jesus? Why does he suppressed the Holy Spirit inside of his own soul, the Holy Spirit that had rushed upon him at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Verse 12 says that he was scared. He feared those people who believed that circumcision was necessary to be part of God's family. And so this outraged Paul. And and again, he confronts Peter, I think, privately and publicly, He confronts him and calls him out in front of everybody. And he takes it a step further by saying, you're committing hypocrisy. Again, this is a gospel issue because circumcision itself isn't the issue. Food itself is not the issue. It's about what happens to people when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. When when food or, or circumcision become more important Then, what the gospel does to people, then it becomes a big deal. Then it becomes a big deal because it takes precedence over the foundation of the doctrine of grace alone for salvation. We are saved by grace alone, not by any outward symbol, not by any action that we take, but by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone. That leads us to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. Look at verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I think Paul's being sarcastic. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, to be justified made right to gain legal standing before holy God by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one is good enough. You know, I I taught a Bible study one time for teenage boys, and I said, how good do you have to be to get into heaven? And they said, well, you know, pretty good. And I said, well, how good? And they said, well, you know, you can't do bad things. You can't kill somebody. You can't, you know, be a drug dealer and go to heaven. And I said, well, well, I think you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And they said, what? If that's true, none of us can go to heaven. And I said, that's right. You're right. All of us are condemned if we're not perfect. You're right. And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus was perfect. And he gives us his Perfection. It's called imputed righteousness that God freely gives to us through Jesus Christ so that we can have his perfection and therefore gain salvation, therefore gain access to the holy God, the Father, not by anything we do, but but 100% because of what he has done for us. All we have to do is believe it and accept it and surrender to it. That's the heart of the matter. So many religious Jews consider themselves as being right with God because of their ethnicity. They were born into the covenant family of God. So many Christians today consider themselves right with God because they may attend church every now and then, because they may give some money even to church every now and then, because their parents were good people, because they got baptized, because they walked the aisle someday. All of that, they think, makes them right with God, but none of it does. Only faith in Jesus Christ makes us right with God. As Paul himself would write later to the Romans, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says, we're all sinners, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, and yet God has made a way through Jesus for us to be made right with God. Verse 16 is such a powerful and compelling verse. I wish we could spend a a year just preaching sermons on that verse, but I encourage you to go back and read it. Just let it, just marinate in verse 16. Maybe memorize it and let the truth of that verse just sink into your soul so we can live into that reality. Three key takeaways here to close. First, do we really see and treat all people as equal before the Lord? Do we really see people as equal before the Lord? The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come with nothing to the cross. No matter what people's background, no matter what their baggage from their past may be, no matter what their bank account may be, all people are in the same sinking boat of sin apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a level field. So do we show partiality to people? Do we treat some people as better than others? Do we fear the opinions of some people more than others? Do we fear for our own reputation? Do we fear our own people, our own tradition, our own tribe over the liberating truth of the gospel for all people? If so, let's repent and recalibrate. Second, do we understand the gospel holistically? Do we understand the gospel is not just about getting souls to heaven? The good news of Jesus is for every part of every person the whole gospel for the whole world for the whole person it's about our minds body and souls don't be conformed to the world paul writes in romans but be transformed by the renewing of your mind jesus told us to love god with all of our heart our soul our strength and with our mind body mind and soul it's all connected we would do well to remember the gospel is for the flourishing of the whole world. We're not just saved so we can go to heaven. We're saved so that we can be part of God's family here on earth now and experience the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our lives now and in our cities, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our governments, in our police force, every aspect of our world now, we play our part as God's family and bringing about shalom, peace and prosperity and flourishing as God would have it as we bring heaven to earth and make earth more like heaven and less like hell. Finally, number three, do we live as though we are good for any reason other than faith in Jesus? Do we take pride in how much we attend church? Do we take pride in how much we give to the church? Do I take pride in being a pastor, that I have it all together and that I'm a good person? If so, we need to repent and recalibrate. This is not what makes us right. Only faith in Jesus makes us right. We bring nothing to the table. As, As Ephesians 2 says, this is so no one can boast. We don't bring anything to the table. We are poor in spirit. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is ours. We are spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves, but praise be to God that he has caused us to be born again into a living hope that is kept for us and never will spoil or perish or fade. If we're relying on anything else other than faith in Jesus to make us right with God, then we are in error. It's 100% his doing. Thanks be to God. Let's renew our hope in the gospel today. Let's live out the whole gospel for the whole world, for the whole person. And let's remember that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Let's come to him every day asking for the grace that only he can give. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. It's good to know that in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of a world filled with sadness and sickness and pain and loss, that we have good news. We know that when we put the good news to the test, that the hypothesis proves to be true time and time again. As the old hymn says, God, it's so sweet to trust in you. And we've proved you over and over as the gospel comes to be tested in our own lives and the lives of those around us. We see you prove the reality of the gospel over and over. God, we thank you that you are indeed making all things new through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that one day you're going to finish that work of redemption, that the good news will be complete as you come to restore the kingdom to the way it should be here on earth as you make a new heaven and a new earth. Until that day, O God, may we faithfully play our part in what you are doing. May we not fear what other people think, but may we boldly declare the truth of the gospel by living out our lives as the people of God, the new covenant people of God, free in Christ, and yet slaves to righteousness that you give us through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.